You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. It's astounding that Greg and Lucia have been producing weekly programs for 35 years. And it stands as one of the last bastions of queer programming on non-commercial radio. So for me, as a historian, these are valuable primary documents uh, by sound. And essentially, it's history as it's happening. This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappell. Scotland's new first minister is Muslim and pro-queer. Kamala Harris defends LGBTQ rights in Ghana. And This Way Out tapped for U.S. Library of Congress project. Those stories and more this week, now that you're celebrating the 35th anniversary edition of This Way Out. I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Ava Davis. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending April 1st, 2023. Humza Yusuf will be First Minister of Scotland, and queer equality advocates are expressing relief. The LGBTQ ally defeated two socially conservative rivals to lead the Scottish National Party on March 27th. He was confirmed as the next First Minister in the formal parliamentary election the following day. Youssef is the first Muslim elected to lead a major UK political party, and the first Muslim to lead a European democracy. One of the critical decisions he'll need to make involves the UK's decision to block Scotland's pro-transgender legislation passed in December. It allowed trans Scots to change their legal gender without medical intervention, and lowered the eligibility age to 16. The Scottish government has until mid-April to contest the unusual UK override, an action that has further fueled the movement for Scotland's full independence from the United Kingdom. During his campaign, Yusuf pledged to fight for the rights of all minorities, a pledge that included banning medically debunked queer conversion therapy, whether or not the conservative UK government finally does. Yusuf also supports embedding LGBTQ rights in an independent Scotland's constitution. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris has LGBTQ rights on her agenda as she tours three African nations that criminalize same-gender sex. At a joint press conference on March 27th with President Nana Akufo-Addo, Harris pressed Ghana's government to abandon the draconian anti-queer bill currently moving through Parliament. It would enhance laws that already make private, consensual, adult, same-gender sex illegal. Prison time for offenders would be increased, and conversion therapy would be mandated in some cases. The measure also includes up to a decade in prison for LGBTQ rights advocates. It outlaws cross-dressing and public displays of affection by same-gender couples, and requires citizens to report suspected LGBTQ people to the authorities. Let me be clear about where we stand. First of all, for the American press who are here, you know that a great deal of, of work in my career has been to address human rights issues, equality issues across the board, including as it relates to the LGBT community. And I feel very strongly about the importance of supporting uh, the, the, the freedom 
and, and supporting and fighting for equality among all people and that all people be treated equally. I will also say that uh, this is an issue that we consider and I consider to be a human rights issue, and that will not change. Without providing specifics, Akufo Addo claimed that the worst parts of the bill had been toned down. However, he failed to express his government's direct opposition to the bill. I have no doubt that the Parliament of Ghana will show, as it has done in the past, one, first of all, its sensitivity to human rights issues, as well as to the feelings of our population, and will come out with a responsible response to the, to, to the proposed. The legislation was a legislation that has been provided provi- as a private member's bill. It's not an official legislation of the government, but it is one that has been been mooted by a handful of private members. So we will see what the final outcome of it. But uh, my understanding from a recent discussion I had with the chairman of the committee, the substantial elements of the bill have already been modified as a result of the intervention of the attorney general. Bill sponsor MP Samuel Narti George disagrees with the president's outlook. He insisted in a television interview the next day that the proposed legislation remains rigid and tough. Fresh off her problematic tour of Australia, British anti-trans campaigner Kelly J. Keane Minshall got a less-than-welcomed response when she tried to speak in New Zealand. The rabble-rouser, known as Hosey Parker, gave up and left the country after up to 5,000 people turned out to protest her anti-trans rally in Auckland. She was pelted with eggs, and someone threw tomato soup on her as she was hustled out of the venue by her bodyguards before she could even begin her speech. Thousands celebrated her absence in joyful demonstrations when her scheduled speeches in Christchurch and Wellington were clearly cancelled. Posey had already been spotted by reporters in the departure area at Auckland International Airport. U.S. Republicans are continuing their assault on transgender existence in several states in which they hold legislative majorities. Laws banning most forms of gender-affirming care for transgender people under the age of 18 have been signed into law by Republican governors in Iowa, Georgia, and West Virginia. Democratic Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear's veto of similar legislation was overridden by Republicans. They also overrode his veto of a bill to require trans people to use the sex-segregated public facilities that match their birth certificate gender. Republicans in Idaho also banned trans people from using bathrooms and locker rooms based on their gender identity. This anti-trans crusade is all politics, no brains, and no heart. Florida's legislature passed a bill to ban trans people from using bathrooms that match their gender identity, despite the factual arguments made by this opposition witness. My name is Caleb Hobson Garcia. I'm a student at Florida State University, and I'm about to graduate with my Bachelor of Science. If this bill passes, you'll be requiring trans men, like me, to use the women's restroom or face criminal punishment. This is rooted in trans misogyny, which is a hatred of trans women. It's rooted in your hatred of non-passing trans people, because being faced with trans people makes you uncomfortable. You haven't even considered what me following the law would look like. It looks like me in the stall next to the females, with my low voice and my facial hair. It looks like me bringing discomfort and potentially traumatic experiences to women. If I follow the law when this bathroom ban passes, it also puts my safety at risk. What happens when husbands see me following their wives into restrooms? 
This law would open the door to aggressive behavior inside and outside of bathrooms as strangers demand other people prove their gender, making all people less safe. That includes cis people who don't conform to stereotypical appearances. Republican lawmakers were equally unmoved by the testimony of the father of a transgender child. I hadn't planned to speak today. My name is Jeff Walker. And what I would like to speak about today is my lived experience as the father of a trans kid. Several years ago, my daughter came to us and she believed she was trans. So what did we do? We went to our trusted pediatrician and he referred us to a gender clinic. And as we've gone through this journey, they have every step of the way, even through the pandemic, been there beside us. No one's pressured my kid to do anything they weren't comfortable with. She is thriving with a group of friends who love and accept her. And when I look at her, all I see is just a happy teenager. And that's all I want for my kids is to be happy in who they are. So if you vote for this, you're voting for people like me to no longer be able to help my kid and go to people I trust as medical professionals. No matter what's going on, you should believe in doctors. How are they right about everything else, about diabetes, about cancer, about a broken arm, about strep throat, about the flu, but wrong about this? I implore you to vote no. And vote this down so that kids like mine can continue to grow up happy. Thank you. Florida's ambition-driven Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to gleefully sign the anti-trans bathroom bill. Meanwhile, the nation's first ban on drag shows has been put on hold. A federal judge is questioning the constitutionality of the Tennessee law. It was set to take effect on April 1st. Finally... A song that was released in 2017 has suddenly become controversial in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin county of Waukesha. Superintendent Jim Siebert has decided that Higher Elementary School's rendition of the Miley Cyrus-Dolly Parton duet Rainbowland could be perceived as controversial. Tell me why a song about rainbows isn't appropriate for a first grader to sing. Sarah Schindler says her daughter Audrey could barely contain her excitement about singing that song in her school's spring concert. Schindler told Fox 6 News Milwaukee that she thinks Siebert felt pressured by his school board, which tilted farther right after recent elections. I think for some reason the district and the administration sees rainbows as a political symbol. Living in a rainbow land, sky's blue and things are grand. To me, that is a message that I want my child to feel. Seven-year-olds should be free to be themselves. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending April 1st, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org. 
where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Ava Davis. Stay healthy. And I'm John Dyer V. Stay safe. Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter, email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. Thank you. Around the world in 35 years, This Way Out the international LGBTQ radio magazine debuted on non-commercial community stations on April 1st, 1988. And at last count, it's broadcast on almost 200 local terrestrial and internet outlets in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, the Philippines, and the USA. In observance of our 35th anniversary, This Way Out CEO and news rap producer Brian DeShazer talks to Josh Shepard of the U.S. Library of Congress Radio Preservation Task Force about the show's historic legacy and the project to maintain it. But first, coordinating producer Greg Gordon tells news rap anchor Michael Taylor Gray how This Way Out was born. Someone from KPFK posted a notice at the time, there was a once-a-month lesbian show and a once-a-month gay men's show. And the guy that was doing uh, the gay men's show was moving, and so KPFK needed some other new people. And yours truly and two other guys signed up, and we did our first show in August of 1974 on KPFK. Okay, now in 1979, and again in 1987, you and This Way Out associate producer Lucia Chappell covered the March on Washington for gay and lesbian rights. Greg, why don't you tell us about the 1987 March on Washington? Lucia and I organized it, and it was also a vehicle for us to recruit uh, other local LGBT radio producers from around the country for what would become This Way Out. What has been to you, Greg Gordon? the most meaningful impact that it's had on people world over? Actually, that's a pretty easy question to answer. When someone tells me or I'm told that they listened to our work when they were deeply in the closet, I remember one person, I listened to your show on my headphones behind my closed bedroom door so no one would know I was listening. And it made me feel more okay about myself. This is probably true, Michael, for a lot of us who do active work in the community in whatever capacity, is we remember how challenging it was when we were coming out and how much of a help having that lone, supportive voice in the night, so to speak, tell us that we were not monsters, we were not sinful, we were not illegal. We were beautiful human beings just the way we were intended to be. And that's what keeps me going. But I know I'm educating people as well as supporting people. And that's, you know, you can't put a price on that. Well, thank you, Greg Gordon. Really, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you've done over the past 40 plus years 
bringing queer voices to the radio. Hi, this is Brian DeShazer, and I'm with This Way Out Radio, and we are welcoming Josh Shepard, the Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, the Director of the Library of Congress's Sound Submissions Project, and a Chair of the Radio Preservation Task Force. He's also the Associate Editor of Resonance, the Journal of Sound and Culture. Welcome to This Way Out, Josh. Thank you for having me, Brian. Cool. Well, we wanted to bring you on this particular episode celebrating 35 years of This Way Out International LGBTQ Radio to talk about our preservation and access project um, that we began about a year ago when we had discussions about the Sound Submissions Project. Sound Submissions is a collaboration between academics and Library of Congress researchers in the Recorded Sound Division, and we curate materials that are then accessioned into the recorded sound reading room at the Library of Congress, typically from endangered materials. But one of the benefits of starting this process once we got through all of the legal counsel and the maneuvering, you know, and all the politics, is that we realized that there are actually great preservation projects that also deserve access for research and public consumption in the recorded sound reading room at the Library of Congress. So working with This Way Out is our honor because uh, we're accessioning something that we believe to be historically significant that is already going through a preservation initiative uh, on behalf of the show itself. So Sound Submissions essentially becomes uh, a two-sided project. The first is saving materials that we might lose through digitization, but also then curating materials that are historically important that have already been digitized, for which This Way Out is a great exemplar. Josh, uh, what makes This Way Out a good candidate for this project? Yeah, it's astounding that Greg and Lucia have been producing weekly programs for 35 years, uh, and it stands as one of the last bastions of queer programming on non-commercial radio. So uh, what I personally love about the show is that you get the voices of people from the community um, without the filtration of you know, uh, journalism or other forms of gatekeeping that you find in commercial radio and even some forms of public radio. Uh, what we have are the voices themselves talking about issues, doing community organizing, and discussing uh, expediencies that are facing the community at the moment in which the expediencies are happening. So for me, uh, as a historian, these are valuable primary documents uh, by sound. So primary sounds, <laughs> we'll call them. And it, essentially, it's history as it's happening uh, without another gatekeeper trying to frame the information in between the moments in which people are responding uh, before it reaches an audience. In 2021, Lynn Ballon of KPFK's Feminist Magazine talked to Lucia Chappell about the founding story of This Way Out. The next march in 87? 87, right. And we drew all these people together. We said we could make a show Mm -hmm. with all these reporters Ah. feeding their material. Okay. It was the early days of the NPR satellite. Mm -hmm. People were just starting to do this instead of, you know, putting cassettes in the mail to each other. (laughs) We were just starting to learn how to fly on the bird. Uh And we said, we could do this. We could put together a weekly magazine 
of material from all these different kinds of reporters from everywhere that we now know that we, for heaven's sakes, we've all slept together exactly. <laughs> on the floor. Right. It's true. You know? yeah. Yeah. So and you, this is the founding story of This Way Out. Yes. Which is like every time I picture this door opening, you know, this like opening of possibility when I hear the name, right? Yes, yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Wow. What has been the most meaningful impact do you think it's had on people? I think a real, um, a solid understanding that we are everywhere. Yeah. That the movement is happening everywhere. That people are in struggle and confronting oppression in all sorts of different contexts around the world. Uh And to have it all put together in one package. This is our queer globe. It's a really different consciousness Mm -hmm. than looking at the movement from the point of view of how much we have progressed here. Mm -hmm. Again, Brian DeShazer talking to Josh Shepard, chair of the Radio Preservation Task Force and director of the Library of Congress's Sound Submissions Project. As the chair of the Radio Preservation Task Force, which is sort of connected with the Sound Submissions Project, there's a conference coming up at the end of April that I am attending and presenting this way out in two caucuses. One, the Sound Submissions Project panel, as well as the Gender and Sexuality Caucus. Can you talk about how this connects a radio show with the classroom and how the academics can now be a part of this preservation project. Yeah, so the conference itself is our fourth conference. The third one got canceled thanks to COVID in 2020. Uh, it is kind of like a best practices clearinghouse meeting of all the different stakeholding sectors connected to sound history. Uh, so that includes preservation, it includes the curation, it includes the grant writing, Uh, And we have representatives, uh, I think, from five different sectors attending. Uh, This will be the biggest one. It'll be uh, 325 people or so across about 275 institutions. It takes place at the Library of Congress. Uh, They were generous. They gave us three days of the entire um, moving image and recorded sound housing building. That's the Madison building at the Library of Congress and even a session or two at the main building that everyone visits for tourism, uh, which is the Jefferson Building. And then we're also working with the Smithsonian. We're working with the Smithsonian Libraries and Archives and the Folklife Division, uh, who are generously uh, giving us some space on Sunday, and they themselves are participating. And we are curating uh, a series of radio art uh, and soundscape programming Uh, listening sessions, I guess we would call them, so that uh, we could have more than simply discussing best practices and logistics, but could actually really tune in to why radio is an art form and why it deserves to be preserved. And that includes political speech, that includes cultural history on radio. It's not just the experimentation, of course, that creates a certain kind of aesthetic around radio. It's the intonation of voices. It's the difference and the representational elements of voices that are important. And of course, those representational elements of sound history are part of what's interesting to 
academics. So academics are deeply invested, especially in the fields of cultural studies and history and gender studies, of which I have minor affiliations with all three, They're deeply invested in recognition projects. So a lot of great academic work will revivify lost histories uh, or will contextualize and rediscover voices that were silenced in the past or deemed liminal uh, but deserve to be central to our cultural discussions. So you know the thing about getting the academics involved in preservation activities is that it actually creates a kind of momentum. It creates an incentive uh, for the granting agencies uh, who I enjoy working with um, in my role uh, with the task force to give money to different types of sound histories that were not previously preserved. So the symbiosis, if you, if you will, between academic and preservation work um, mobilizes new research on our end. Uh, and then on the preservation end, it actually gives a reason for there to be preservation when there should have been reason in the first place, of course, uh, publicly. But the, the classroom provides that kind of engine and that kind of audience. Uh, for there to be money to be distributed for the preservation of these objects. And just as an aside, uh, you know, it costs something like 70 or $80 per recording typically uh, to get it digitized through what we call a vendor. A vendor just being a third party that has the equipment to digitize from the original reel-to-reels. Uh, so the, there's tape, there's record, there's reel-to-reels, uh, all kinds of old media that we don't really use anymore. So that being the case... You know, we got to get that money uh, from somewhere. And for that, someone to be willing to give that money, there has to be cause or reason or like a rationale is what they say for grant writing. And so we provide that. So the uh, academics, the research, the classrooms provide a rationale um, for the more bureaucratic elements of preservation to uh, green light the kinds of recognition work as we see it or memory work that is being done through shows like This Way Out. Well, thank you, Josh, and it's really um, a privilege and an honor to be recognized by the Library of Congress and the Radio Preservation Task Force and the Sound Submissions Project uh, to bring this way out to a level of, of research and reference and, and education, which is what it's built on in public radio anyway, in the non-commercial sector. Well, Josh Shepard, thank you so much for joining us on This Way Out. I really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you at the end of April in Washington, D.C. at the Library of Congress. Thanks, Brian. I'll see you there. If you would like to help us get to the Library of Congress, contact us at brian at thiswayout.org. That's brian with an I at thiswayout.org. I'm Brian DeShazer for This Way Out. Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter, email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. More information about how you can give is online at thiswayout.org. Thank you. Hello. I'm Olena Shevchenko from Inside Ukraine, a support network for LGBTQI people. That's next time on This Way Out.
Thanks for choosing This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. News Wrap was reported this week by John Dyer V and Ava Davis and produced by Brian DeShazer. Brian also produced this week's 35th anniversary feature, including interviews by Michael Taylor Glay and Lynn Harris Ballin. Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton, The Beatles, Triumph, and The Moody Blues performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks sustaining funders the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation and the Yavana Foundation, and listener donors Richard Merkin and Brad Prayton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors like them make this program possible, so can you. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email us at info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and the entire This Way Out crew, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org or wherever you get your podcasts and on the World Radio Network's Global English Language Service through Australia's Community Radio Network and close to 200 local community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.